Kid me Falcha. Welcome to Omicron Behab Podcast for July 19, 2023. Hello again. My name is Terrence O'Donnell, and I'm back for another episode of news from around the world and an op-ed about something that may or may not be important to you, depending on what matters to you. In this case this week, I'm going to read you a story, but I'll get to that here in a minute. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on rss.com. It is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and a couple of others. Once a week, I try to offer you stories from news feeds and blog writers from around the world that you may not have heard about yet, or maybe you have. A little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Shanghai, a Gaelic storyteller. And I want this podcast to feel like we are sitting under the Aung Krambiha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life, typically the village oak tree. Sitting under this village tree together, I will read for you headlines from news feeds, relevant blog articles about climate change, racism, politics, and social injustice pieces, usually not found on the front pages and why I think these stories are relevant to the world we found ourselves. This podcast is free to subscribe to for all who care to listen. I don't want money to stop you from listening. The purpose of this show is to push people to get up and make a difference in our world before it gets too late to do anything about it. I do offer the option of donations on the rss.com webpage where the show is hosted and within my blog articles, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. I also publish a weekly newsletter detailing everything I talked about today with links to the articles I bring attention to and some commentary about the week's events. These are available at medium.com and substack.com. All to support my online, online activism and storytelling. I will also be taking a break once I deliver these headlines from the last seven days. During the break, I promote my website, Ankrambiha, and my stories and articles published in online in a short one to two minute clip, nothing too fancy. This week, I don't have a lot of stories for you. It seems I had slim pickings for stories because the news media is focused on the extreme heat dumps happening all over the world right now. I don't want to jump on that same bandwagon. I don't know about you, but I don't like the reruns, and if I give you the stories about the extreme heat or toxic politics, I'd sound like everybody else out there. Instead, I will give you what I have, and I'm going to read you a story in the second half to take your mind off the bad things going on. So let me start out with these hand-picked articles, and then I'll read you a story entitled The Puka of Lonicoil Mountain. This week, my first story is about animals. It seems we have a bunch of animals all over the world. And, I, you know, I mentioned something about this before, about orcas attacking boats off the coast of Spain and a couple other places there in Europe. It seems like it's going around the world now. This story, first story I have is an aggressive sea otter is snatching surfers' boards. Experts are puzzled. There's no clear explanation for the sea mammal's behavior, say authorities, who has seen, who's been seen riding and gnawing on surfboards. And this came out of TheGuardian.com. So it isn't rocket science. Our otters are part of a trend in marine life getting back to the humans, getting back at the humans for messing up their habitat, like the orcas and the dolphins. We have a lot more sharks taking bites out of people in the last few years. So are you starting to see a pattern here? Well, these otters, this otter in particular, maybe a couple more, this is off the coast of California in the United States. So then it leads me into the next article. New York has got shark-infested waters. New York's shark-infested waters are a good thing. Yes, really, nature is healing, by Benji Jones. And this came out of Vox.com. It's an environmental story about how having sharks off your beaches is good for the environment, but not so good for stupid humans. 
Sharp, sharks have, have a little trouble sometimes telling the difference between their natural prey and humans, who apparently don't taste all that great to them anyway. As noted, there's been a few shark bites off the coast of Long Island, but as we've known from the news, this isn't just in Long Island. Florida's had a bunch of them. Uh, the Carolinas have noticed some, so on and so forth. It kind of seems like maybe the sharks are moving north because of global warning, maybe, you think. But, they're, you know, like anything else, they're chasing food. And if the food is moving north, that's where they're going to go. And then I picked this article up this morning. Swimmers injured in dolphin attacks on Japan, Japan Beach. This came out of BBC.com. Dolphin attacks now. More and more mammals and animals seem to be fighting back against the humans here lately. And I just mentioned this. So my question is, is this going to be a new trend for any other species inhabiting the planet? I mean, are they starting to fight back against all the injustices? Yeah, I mean, there's been some issues with poachers getting killed a lot more here lately too over in Africa. My next one is dealing with women's rights and getting off the animals. It is, we're talking about women's rights. So the American FDA, Federal Drug Administration, approves the first over-the-counter contraceptive pill in the U.S. Regulators green light for non-prescription sales of daily birth control pill comes as abortion restrictions tighten across the United States. And I got this one out of Al Jazeera. So this is good news for American women. Finally, an over-the-counter birth control pill that might help with a lot of those unwanted pregnancies. Now, what are the red states going to do? Ban this pill in their state legislatures? You have to know what they will think of this, and you bet you they're going to try. Just wait for it. You know, I'm, I figure maybe within the next two to three, four weeks, we're going to probably start seeing the first news articles on this. Certain red states are going to ban this. This one is kind of a political article from Tom Hartman's HartmanReport.com. Could Kamala Harris' invisibility become a crisis? Establishing a political and personal identity in the public's mind early is early on is a crucial to effective campaigning and to developing a campaign that can withstand both personal and political attacks. So this is a good point. Kamala Harris is, is already on the ticket for Biden's re-election campaign. But the biggest problem she's had ever since she took office as the vice president is relevancy. She's Nobody likes her. I mean, less up to the news people say. I mean, I really can't say for rallies or when she actually talks to people, but I guess these poll takers, surveyors, are all running around asking people, and I have to wonder who they're asking, saying that nobody likes her. And I, I have to wonder, you know, so... Is, is, is she going to be a liability to the, to the Biden re-election campaign? Well, it could be fun. You know, here's the other part of that. You know, she's a good alternative from the, from the Democrat side of the House. Biden being as old as he is, the Democrats need to step this up because the only other Democrat challenger is Robert F. Kennedy. He's a nut job who's more at home with the, as a MAGA politician than a Democrat. And that's the big issue everybody's scared of right now. Is Kamala, would Kamala Harris make a good president if Biden, uh, you know, folds out here in the, you know, over the next four years? Well, actually, it's almost six years now. He'll be 86 when he finally gets out of office. Everybody's scared of that. Now I got an environmental one for you. With our food systems on the verge of collapse, it's the plutocrats versus life on earth by Georgie Monbiot. 
And I got this out of Guardian.com. The author talks about how climate change is wreaking, wreaking havoc on the food ecosystems around the planet, but the news media seems to make more money from clickbait with movie star stories. Mainstream media largely ignores the existential crisis. Tarn Hartman has written extensively about this in his Daily, Talk, Daily Take blog. The rich get richer, living in their climate-protected bubbles, taking more and more resources for themselves, leaving the vast majorities of the rest of humanity to starve or die from the climate crisis weather events. If more machines get invented to run off AI, this will further exasperate the wealth gap at future generations. Insulated ivory towers for them, and death and wasteland living for everybody else. Well, as I've mentioned before, if climate if the climate change and global warming get to the point where you have humans living in so-called wastelands, then the, the rich people aren't going to be safe. Because I guarantee you, these masses of humanity running around looking for food, that's the first thing they're going to do, is they're going to break into these enclaves and, and bunkers and stuff, and they're going to get their food. And the rich people won't, won't be able to stay them off. It's, that'll be interesting. I mean, you're, you're talking Mad Max stuff right here. Next question is also environmental. I say question. Next article. European Union approves ambitious nature restoration law. European countries hope healing forests, wetlands, and oceans will help them meet their climate and biodiversity targets and bolster food security by Bob Berwin. This came out of InsideClimate.News.org. It's an ambitious law in the EU that is drawing pushback from European farmers. They worry about their livelihoods being endangered. Now the EU has to convince everyone just how good this will be for future, future generations. And basically what they're talking about here is they're going to get aggressive in replanting deforested areas and beefing up the, the, uh, all of the land, Re, uh, reinstalling peatlands and um, you know, fields and forests and everything else, uh, and, and, and also kind of figure out how to um, feed the people off of this. And the farmers obviously are worried about their livelihoods. So that's going to be interesting. And I do have, I, you know, I mentioned I wasn't going to talk about the heat dome. But I'm sorry, I do have one here. The heat wave scorching the U.S. is a self-perpetuating monster. Record highs in the U.S. are due to a heat dome. And it's expected to worsen by Matt Simon in Wired.com. And I got this story from Ars Technica. But it, the original story came out of Wired.com. And the story talks about how the current heat dome is, what, is just one of more to come around the world and how they self-perpetuate due to the lack of evaporation from the ground once the soil loses all its moisture due to solar radiation. Very scientific, I know. But it's just more bad news from the environmental issues that man has caused. And it's a long way from getting rolled back. It's the environment versus the political capitalistic mentality that's currently possessing humankind around the world right now. Question is, who's going to win, the planet or the humans? Next article is another environmental piece. Paying the Price, Let Market Forces End the Fossil Fuel Era by William S. Becker. He's, a, he's an opinion con contributor to TheHill.com. This opinion piece talks about how much the fossil fuel industry has called the world about the emissions and damage to the environment they've all known about for nearly 60 years. It was decided to spin it a different way to keep the profits flowing. Now the planet's paying for their hubris. He advocates removing all government subsidies for the fossil fuel industry 
and let them sink or swim on their own. Considering the massive profits they have made recently, losing that government will only, will only make a slight dent in their bottom line. So what's the holdup? The GOP with their hands deep in their fossil fuel industry's pockets. That's what. The same goes for the Canadian Western provinces, who are heavily dependent on fossil fuel, fossil fuel profits and the tax revenues and jobs that they bring to the provinces. Alberta, especially. They're, they're making a lot of noise right now about Trudeau's deal, about fossil fuel initiatives, dialing back climate emissions and all this kind of stuff. And Alberta and, and British Columbia, mostly Alberta, uh, they're fighting back saying, oh, no, no, you're going to take away our livelihoods. Well, you know, you need to find a new line of work. Somebody told me once upon a time. Now we're going to get into racism. I've got an article here from USA Today Network. Guilty or two, quote, guilty until proven innocent, unquote, question mark. Advocates say black immigrants face racial bias in court. This is by Dana King. This came out, as I said, usatoday.com. Story from Ohio, who already has a bad reputation for human rights when it comes to immigrants and others, is now being called out for his biased judges in immigration courts. In this case, towards black immigrants from Mauritania who have been tortured, raped, and enslaved. Donald Trump changed the policy back in 2019 so that all undocumented are classified as priorities for deportation instead of just no criminals. American-European colonialism strikes again. It's a, it's a decent article here, not a bad read, but it talks about how these people were seriously abused over there in Mauritania, which is why they came to the United States in the first place. And now Ohio wants to send them right back. And I picked this article up this morning, and this is out of Medium.com. It's entitled Unrapeable, The Real and De Facto Status of Black Women Throughout American History by William Spivey. It's a well, very well-written article regarding the judicial differences between women of different skin colors here in the U.S., this is shameful, to put it mildly. I have to wonder if there isn't something genetically defective with the white European descendants around the world that perpetuate this condition of, of this superiority complex. That, and maybe a genetic ability to reproduce at prodigious rates. Although now, that is starting to diminish, thank the gods. But again, this is a very, very good article. And it talks about how black women have been treated since, since they were first enslaved in Africa and, and you know, th sent throughout the world to, to uh, work on the plantations and everywhere else. And it's, a, it's some really insightful stuff here. So that's all the stories I have for you this week. So I'm going to go ahead and go to break. And that's the end of my first half. Um, be back in a couple of minutes and I'll read this story to you to kind of take your mind off all the bad stuff. So bear with me and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to take this time to bring attention to my website on Crombieha at https colon forward slash forward slash 527.websitex5.me. In this website, I have a blog page where I post copies of my articles, teasers about my books, and a synopsis of the weekly podcast. Here in the website, you can also learn a little more about what on Crombieha means for a little bit of Irish culture and more about me in general. I also have links to this podcast, my Medium and Substack pages, an ad page for my books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. 
If you like my medium.com and substack.com articles, I have an option at the end of these articles to, and stories to leave a donation to my coffee fund and sign up for a subscription if you want. I also post a weekly newsletter as a follow-up to the podcast every week in both publications. I don't want anyone to feel obligated to financially support my work, which I why I offer everything for free. Medium does ask you to sign up to read the full pieces, though, even though I offer them for free, so just a heads up. Each article I write will be, avail- be available in the blog section of my website if you don't want to sign up for anything. I just don't have all the extra frills that you'll find on medium.com and substack.com or access to all the other great writers there. But at least I give you a choice. If you enjoy reading, there are great choices to find out what you like most and dive in as much as you want. I hope to hear from you, whatever you decide. Welcome back to the second half of Alan Crombie podcast. Today I bring to you a fictional Irish story about a man from a pastime who believed in fey gold and what happened when he actually found some. Now, I wrote this article back in January. I re-edited it here very recently. Uh, it's something that I picked up out of my imagination, and I published it here for everybody to read. So let me get to it. The Puka of Lognacoil Mountain, a story about an Irishman and his quest for fey gold. So as I said, I rewritten this story to edit out the mistakes I made and make it better for readings. So I hope everybody can enjoy it. Sean Murphy, Big Murph as his mates called him in the local pub, was a big man, always had been. And he knew it too. He never had a problem pushing himself around the town trying to be the big man and when he, you know, and being well liked by his, by his neighbors and mates. He's a, he was a noted hiker and liked to hi- hike up Long Nicoil Mountain, or Lug Mountain, as the tourists called it. This is from where he lived in Nocknarragan. He would go up for hours at a time looking for lost items left by the tourists and shed treasure whenever he had free time. Truth be told, he was more interested in finding any fake treasure that was supposed to be on this mountain, according to the old stories. Tourists rarely left anything of real value, but he would always take a small bag because, he, as he would tell his mates over a pint, you never know what you might find up there someday. He knew the townspeople thought he was a bit touched in the head over his obsession with finding Shea treasure, but he was never afraid of anyone, and he told him so after he had downed a pint or two. No one dared to come right out and say it to his face. Despite the snickering, he continued his weekly trips up the mountain to see what he could find. When he was younger and not so smart, he would brag to any and all about how he was going to find the fey gold someday and show them all he was right. As he never found anything through the years, he eventually stopped bragging about it because he knew everyone was talking about him behind his back. By now, he was starting to get a little on in years, and his little shop was doing well enough for him to get by comfortably these days. So the intensity to find a rich hoard of fey gold wasn't as strong as it was in his more adventurous youth. Nowadays, he scavenged the tourist trails, mostly looking for lost items like the occasional gold bracelet or their other small treasures, all lost by many tourists who climbed the trail around the mountain. What little he found would go in the local lost and found, and if no one claimed it within a certain time, he'd pawn it off and drink the money up at the pub. He usually went up the mountain late in the afternoons on the weekends, after most of the tourists had left the park. Lug Mountain was not a place to be watering the trails after dark, though. There were the usual drain- dangers of fog and rain clouds at the top and in the valleys around. Then there were all the legends of the Fey who were supposed to be in the more rugged areas off the designated trails. This is where Big Murph liked to go after he had scavenged the tourist trails, especially when he came up with nothing around the marked trails. 
He had lived in Nocknagarig and all his life and knew all the stories. He also knew that despite the legends, the mountain could be dangerous all on its own. There were rocky cliffs and hard walking off the trails where a man could make a wrong turn or trip on a rock, and it would be over before anyone could find him. On this particular Saturday, he waited until late afternoon, as he was wont to do, before setting out on the main trail from town. He had been this way so many times since his youth, he could hike it blindfolded. Not that he would. Despite his familiarity, there were too many things that could happen without warning, such as the weather, and, he didn't, and it didn't pay to take chances or take anything for granted. While he walked up the familiar trail, he would tip his hat to the tourists. It paid to be nice as they, as they provided the town a nice revenue stream from their tourism, his little shop being one of the beneficiaries of that money. Sean Murphy's shop sold metal trinkets and he made himself out in a little shop at the back of his store. Little metal bracelets and window chimes and other tourist knickknacks made in the shapes of the wee folk of the stories. He found out years ago that superstition sells, and although it took a little while, he is now selling enough to make a decent living. He whistled a little ditty as he headed up the mountain this day, and with the sun warming his back as it settled in the afternoon sky, he felt pretty good. A good day for a hike with a bag over my shoulder, he thought. As it was starting to get closer to sundown, he noticed that the tourists had pretty much all left for the day. There were one or two stragglers, but they were headed down as well. He was the only one going up. Good, he thought. Now I can have the mountain to myself. He hiked up to his usual spot on the trail, a lookout place where the tourists could look across the valley and enjoy the view. This was usually where he set up his kit to start looking for the lost valuables. Once he had everything ready, he would start walking back and forth over the sides of the trails to see if anyone dropped something or anything else he found of unusual nature. As he started out this afternoon, he just did his usual sweeps without thinking, out of habit more than anything else. While walking through the heather on each side of the trails, he started thinking again about the fake treasures that were supposedly somewhere up on this mountain. There had been stories about this treasure hoard going back in this mountain's memory since anyone could remember. Many gener generations by now. Big Murph always wanted to be the one to find it so he could be the local here in the hero in the town. While he walked and looked for lost items this evening just before twilight, he thought he saw something move just out of, out of eyesight. Just a hint of movement for a brief moment off the right side of the trail ahead. He stopped and stood in the trail in order to focus a little more at where he thought he saw the movement. As he stood looking out over the open land, he didn't see anything, so he chalked it up to imagination. He continued to sweep of the trails and noticed the clouds starting to move in over the southern horizon. Sean watched to see if they were going to come in fast. He didn't want to get caught up here in a downpour. The nearest place to get out of the weather was over half an hour away towards the top of the mountain. Sean knew of a rocky outcropping that would give him some marginal shelter from a rainstorm, but he was too far away yet to be able to make it ahead of a fast-moving thunderstorm. As he watched, the clouds seemed to be moving very slowly, so he determined it would likely be raining on the morrow. If he was going to find anything this weekend, it would have to be tonight. Sean was a little uncomfortable being on a mountain after dark, but he had his torch with him, so he wasn't, he wasn't too awfully worried. Since the trails were well-worn and marked with signs, he knew he could find his way back to town with little trouble after dark. He had hiked these trails for years and knew them all too well. Sean continued on his journey, scanning the sides of the trails. So far, not finding anything of value tonight. Just after sundown, with just a, a sliver of light on the horizon, Sean thought he saw it moving in the field off to the right again. 
Once again, he stopped and looked to see if he could see it again. This time he pulled out his torch and started shining it around to see if he could find whatever was moving around out there. Again, nothing. Sean was starting to get a little apprehensive. He normally didn't scare too easily, but a chance meeting with one of the Shea here on the mountain in the dark made him nervous. They were very dangerous, according to the old stories, and Sean was no match for their fey magic. He didn't want to get taken away, as they were supposed to do, into one of the Shea mounds, never to be seen again. Sean decided that he, would pack, he should pack it up. He had lost the mood to continue his search for trinkets and gold. As he started putting everything away, he heard a sound like someone clearing their throat. He looked up, and an abnormally large rabbit sat up on the trail in front of him and said, Trahelo ma! Good evening, in English. Sean started with his eyes going white as saucers. He knew what this was and wanted no part of it. This had to be a puka, a trickster spirit of the mountain. The puka stared at him and asked him in Gale, What are you doing up here after dark? Sean, having grown up speaking Irish as a first language, had to think for a minute before answering. It had been a while since he had talked to anyone in the Gale. Sean gathered, gathered his wits and explained to the rabbit, I've been looking for treasures left behind by the tourists, but I was just leaving for the night. And he tried to excuse himself. He hoped the puka would take the hint and leave him be. Not so. He told Sean, I know where the fae keep their treasure hoard, and I can lead you to it if you want. Now Sean, being very anxious at the moment, wasn't sure he understood him right. He asked him to say that again, slower this time. The puka looked at Sean as if to say, Are you deaf or something? Then he repeated himself with a little annoyance in his voice, and Sean, th Sean thought it over for a bit. Big Murph knew all about how pukas like to trick people for their own pleasure, and he wasn't in the mood to play games with him in the dark. But he worried that if he tried to brush him off, something bad might happen, and they certainly didn't want that. Better to play the game and see where it leads. The worst thing that might happen is a night out in the dark talking to a very large rabbit. Sean agreed to follow the puka down the trail and wherever else he wanted to go. The puka smiled in his rabbity way and started regaling Sean with the old stories of the Shea of Longnacoil most of which Sean had heard before, but he didn't say anything. He would just nod and mutter when appropriate. As they went further up the mountain, Sean began to worry about the batteries in his torch. That way the last thing he needed tonight was to be stuck on the mountain all night with a puka and no light to make his way home again. Sean decided to try and conserve his batteries to see if there was enough moonlight to see the trail by. As he shut off the light, the puka looked back at him and asked if he was all right. Puka said, sure, and I'm just putting some things away. They walked for over an hour up the mountain. The moon was shining bright enough so far to give Sean enough light to be able to recognize where they were going. Sean wondered if he was being led on a wild chase up the mountain, but he didn't, say, didn't dare say anything. After a bit, the rabbit left the trail and headed towards an outcropping. Sean knew the place as he had been here a few times before, but he also knew that it was quite a chore to hike to in broad daylight, much less in the moonlight. Sean had to slow down to avoid tripping over the rocks, and the rabbit was starting to look annoyed. Sean looked at him and shrugged his shoulders with an apologetic smile on his face and kept up as best as he could in the low light. Pretty soon they arrived at their destination. The rabbit went over to a shallow depression in the side of the small hillside cliff and told Sean, Hurry up! We don't want to run afoul of the shade before midnight hour. That was when the veil between the two worlds was the thinnest and they awoke to run through the night. The puka pointed to a spot under the overhang and said, There is some fey treasure buried there. If you want it, you need to dig it up quickly before we're found. Sean wondered how true this was, but figured what did he have to lose. He put down his kit bag, walked over to the spot the rabbit was pointing to. 
he decided to keep the puka in sight just in case of any trickery while he started to move some rocks. As Sean moved the first rock, he made a noise, and the rabbit shushed him to be quieter. As Big Murph used his strength to quietly set the rocks aside, he started to notice a hole underneath. Once the final rock was set aside, Sean saw a gleam in the moonlight and reached into the shallow hole. He felt what he thought was some type of jewelry and started to pull it out. Just as it cleared the hole, the puka shushed him again and said, Hold! I think I hear something! Sean couldn't resist the temptation to see what he had in his hand. He quietly pulled out a necklace of gold with silver filigree and gemstones attached worth a king's ransom. He set it down next to him and reached back down into the hole and pulled out a large handful of gold coins and a jewel-encrusted dagger. As Sean was looking at his find, the puka started waving his rabbity arms in warning and started to run away. Sean knew what that probably meant. They had been found out and the alarm had been raised. Sean quickly started stuffing the treasure in his bag while looking for the rabbit who is nowhere in sight now. At this point, all Sean could do was try and make his way down the mountain as best he could and hope he didn't hurt himself. If there was anything left in the hole, he figured he could come back up tomorrow and grab the rest, if it was still there. For now, he needed to make haste as safely as he could back to town. As he started to work his way back to the trail, he thought he heard a sound behind him, but was too scared to turn around and look. He pulled out his watch and noticed that it was a couple hours before midnight, and he needed to go now. The big man walked slowly to the trail to avoid tripping and kept soliciting for any unusual noises behind him. He kept thinking he was hearing things, but as he couldn't see anything to worry about yet, he kept going until he was back on the main trail again. Sean stopped to catch his breath for a moment as he put his feet on the actual trail leading down the mountain. As he was resting, he heard what sounded like ethereal music coming from the mountain behind him. Sean thought he must be hearing things because he was scared and it was late. The shot was getting louder, so Sean decided he better get moving back down the trail before whoever was making that music found him. He didn't want to get robbed by hoodlums on the mountain this late after dark. As Sean quickly moved down the trail, he decided not to turn his torch on for fear of any thieves seeing him. Since he knew the trail so well, he thought he could make his way without too much trouble. He just had to focus on watching the trail in the moonlight and mind his footing. As he was setting off towards town, the music steadily got louder around him. Now Big Murph was starting to get really scared for the first time in his life. He started to look around at the dark to see if he could spot the source of that strange music floating above the hills around him. While he was looking around, he somehow missed the trail and found himself standing in the heather with a trail nowhere in sight. He was truly lost on the mountain in the dark now. All he could do was try and head west and try and pick up the trail again. Meanwhile, the music kept getting closer. As Sean started to head across the meadow, he saw a bright light coming from the direction where he had found the fake treasure. It moved like it was heading right for him. He started to panic a little, then told himself, I can handle a couple of thieves if I have to. Hopefully they, they weren't armed. He kept walking slowly in what he thought was a westerly direction, thinking that he might, he might be able to find a place to lay low until they gave up looking for him in the dark. All the while, the bright lights kept getting closer and closer. Big Murph decided he wouldn't he wouldn't make it to any hiding place in time, so he stood his ground and made ready to fight. As he watched, he couldn't believe his eyes. It was a brightly lit chariot pulled by big white steeds with a driver and a warrior, all dressed in ancient armor, with a handful of brightly lit horse warriors behind him. Sean knew he was in deep trouble now. He recognized them from the stories of old. This was the Shea Wild Hunt, and they had found him. All he could do was put up a good fight and hope for the best. Maybe they would make quick work of him, and he wouldn't feel any pain. 
As the wild hunt came up on Sean standing there with his fist clenched and feet spread, the warrior in the chariot shouted for them to stop on the old gale. They were all lit up in the moonlight and shining in all their glory. The warrior told Sean, Give us back what you took from us. If you do so without trouble, we'll let you go back down the mountain with no harm to you. Sean knew that he was talking about the treasure he had in his bag, but this warrior had a really big-looking spear pointing at him, and the riders behind him had what looked like silver swords ready to chop him down should he decide to run. Sean realized that he had nowhere to go, and he had better do as they said. He put his hands up where they could be seen and pulled his bag up to point inside. He told them in his limited ability with the old gale, The treasure is in the bag. At a nod from the, from the Shea warrior in the chariot, Sean reached into the bag and pulled out everything he had grabbed from the hole earlier. He laid it on the ground in front of himself, stood up, and stepped back with his hands at his side. The warrior gestured for Sean to gather it up and bring it to him in his chariot. As Sean knelt down to grab it off the ground, one of the horsemen rode up and pointed his sword at him as if to ensure nothing was left behind. Sean walked over to the chariot, which shone so bright in the moonlight he had to shade his eyes, to set the jewelry and coins down on the back of the chariot. The warrior told Sean, I'm a prince among the Shea of Lognacoil, and if you steal this treasure from us, you and yours will be cursed for the rest of your life. Since you willingly gave us back our treasure without issue, I will grant you the gift of one gold coin, but you can never trade it for anything in a mortal world, nor can you give it to anyone beyond your descendants. Sean accepted the coin and thanked him for his generosity. As Sean stepped back, the hunt turned around and returned to the top of the mountain from whence they came. As the bright lights dimmed and finally disappeared altogether, Sean gathered himself up with his bag over his shoulder and started walking west again. Within a couple of minutes, he found the main trail and hiked down until he reached the town. Sean found his way to his shop, let himself in the back door and went straight to bed. The next morning, he woke up dead tired and thought about what he had seen through the night before. All Sean could think of was that it all sounded like a bad dream. Maybe I had a little bit too much to drink at a pub last night, and the events on the mountain are just a drunken nightmare, he thought. As he put his trousers on, he felt something heavy in the pocket. Sean reached in and found the gold coin, and realized that it wasn't just a nightmare after all. There really were pukas and shea on the old mountain, and here was his proof. As he stood looking at the gold coin, he remembered what the shea prince had told him. Big Murph would never be able to brag about this to any of his mates at the pub, or anyone else unless he wanted to incur the wrath of the Shea and be cursed for the rest of his life. Sadly, he put the coin in his lockbox and started his day. He had breakfast to make and things to do. He decided against going back up the mountain today. As the years went by, Big Murph kept going up the mountain looking for treasure and kept the secret safe. No one ever heard the story of that night on the mountain. Sean kept that secret until his deathbed. In years following that night, Sean's luck seemed to bring him more success and a little fame but not for anything he ever found on the mountain, or maybe it did, just in a different way. Sean Murphy became a successful retailer by finding a market outside of his little town for his handmade knickknacks. It seems that an American with Irish roots had seen his work and wanted to sell his homemade knickknacks in America. He told Sean that Irish Americans loved all that stuff about the Fay, and there was a big market for trinkets like his in the U.S. With that, they struck a deal, and Sean became quite wealthy by the time he reached old age. Sean found a wife, had three children, lived a good life until his end. When his time came, he gathered all of his children around his deathbed and asked the oldest to bring that old lockbox to him. I have something to show you, he says to them. 
While they all looked on, Sean told him the story of that night on the mountain and unlocked the old box. Inside was that old gold coin that he had locked away all those years ago. Sean took it out and showed it to him, then made them promise that they would continue to keep it in the family for as long as there were still children to pass it on to. He told them about the fake curse and what would happen if they failed in their promise. Sean told them all, I suppose the Fae will come to the last one of you in the future and reclaim that coin when it is time. But until then, the coin will continue to bring the family good fortune as long as you keep it safe. When the all solemnly promised, Sean passed on, and the family continued to prosper for a couple more generations, each one making their children keep the same promise at the ends of their lives. Then one year, one of Sean's great-grandsons, who scoffed at the old tale, decided he needed more play money. He didn't think his allowance, which was substantial compared to most people, was good enough for his needs. He liked to party and have the prettiest girls on his arms, drive the most expensive cars, and all that silly stuff. He conned his dad into showing him the gold coin and figured out how to get the old box away from the house to open it. One night he stole the box, busted the lock with a hammer, grabbed the old coin, and ran off to Dublin to sell it to an antiquities dealer for quite a tidy sum. Within a fortnight, he had crashed his car, died a horrible death. His family suddenly, suddenly lost all their investments in the stock market, and they became destitute. As his dad looked around at the disaster that had befallen them, he went to look for the box and found it gone. Now he knew what happened and shook his head. The family promise made so long ago had been broken, and there was nothing to be done. The coin was gone. Likely it had found his way back to the Shea on Lug Mountain by now. All he could do was weather the storm and pick up the pieces when it was over. Once the money ran out and all but one of Sean Murphy's descendants had died, the last remaining member of the family went back to Narragan. He never married and used what little money he had left to open a knick-knack shop for the tourists, who still trekked up to Lug Mountain to see the natural wonders of County Wicklow, Ireland. He learned to supplement his meager, meager income by hiking up the mountain on the weekends to search for lost items and possible fake treasure with his metal detector until he was too old to go anymore. The story of Sean Murphy and the Fay Gold died with him and was soon forgotten by everyone in Narragan, but not the Shea of Logna Coil Mountain. And so that's the end of the story, and I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I'm not the best reader in the world, but, you know, I try to do a pretty good job. So that's, the, that's all I have for you this week. I hope I've enlightened you with, with my choice of stories and thoughts. So I'm going to close this show out with the question of the week. Are you afraid of other people who don't look, act like, believe like you? If so, what are you afraid of they will do to you? And I'm going to leave you that question to ask yourself as you go through your week. With that, I'm going to close out, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll return again for another episode of On Crom Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Each podcast episode will be free and can be found on many different platforms now, although some may have advertisements. Unfortunately, I have no control over that. Search for On Crom podcast or under my name, T-O-D-O-M-H-N-A-I-L-L, in your favorite app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree together during our time together. As a Shahe, I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you some news from the outside world. 
or maybe a story or two that may bring you a smile or make you think for a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your troubles be less and your blessings be more and nothing but happiness come through your door. Schlange which means goodbye for now in Irish.